Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Alva. On this week's New Statesman podcast, we talk about our interview with Annalise Dodds. And you ask us, what future for Labour's trade union link? So we went to the seaside recently, went on Ferris wheel. Sadly, we did not have time to get ice cream. We didn't go just so we could go on a Ferris wheel, which I think we actually both pretty much immediately regretted. But because the chair of Labour's policy review, Annalise Dodds, was also there as part of our policy review to talk to her about the policy review, a year as shadow chancellor, how she sees the direction of the Labour Party. Alva, it's now on the website, people can read it. But what did you feel the sort of the big take-homes from, from our interview with Annalise were? Someone messaged me after the interview went up, someone who works for the Labour Party, and they said, great interview with Annalise. I feel like you've been building up to this for a long time. <laughs> because long-time listeners and readers will know that we have been talking about whether Rachel Reeves was going to replace Annalisa Dodds as Shadow Chancellor for nearly a year. And... We've had lots of discussions about it on the podcast and at various points we reported on the sort of internal criticisms of Annalisa Dodds and the way Rachel Reeves maybe seemed to be posturing slightly for that position. And so this interview kind of brought it all to a close, I suppose, because of course during Keir Starmer's botched reshuffle after the local elections in May and the devolved elections and by-election in Hartlepool. He he did end up replacing uh, Annalisa Dodds with Rachel Reeves, but this was the first time that she, Annalisa Dodds, has really spoken about that year. And it was interesting because, as you say, the two of us did the interview together and it was the first opportunity that we had to hear from her not just how it felt to have been effectively sacked as shadow chancellor and moved to a different role but kind of how the whole year had gone I mean I think there are a few actually quite interesting things in what she said I suppose the the main thing I would say first it's funny to talk about your own interview isn't it I would say that (laughs) that the main thing is actually that Annalisa Dodds is, is a kind of master of subtext that you, and, and I hope that, that we have brought out what is implied at various points and things that she has said. But on the face of it, what she's saying is 
yeah, it was annoying a wee bit that there was speculation when I was shadow chancellor that I might be moved because that's not good for the Labour Party. I don't like internee science staff. Keir's the boss of the team. You know, he's allowed to move us around. I love the Labour Party so, so much. And here are all my thoughts on what we do next. But the subtext is a bit more subtle. And I think that there are far more criticisms there. I don't know if you would agree. I think that is the case. And it's odd because, so this is, I think, actually the first joint interview that we have done as a politics team since Anoush and I interviewed Andy Berno way back in in 2015, which is weird because it was one of the things that I wanted us to do more of when I became political editor. In my defence, for quite a lot of time I've been political editor, we've either been in lockdown or in, like, the teeth of the Brexit vote. And I think it works better because I think, you know, politicians behave differently when there's an audience. It means that, you know, you can divide the fleet so you don't have that thing where you're often outnumbered by the politician and they're bad. But it does make it more weird because it means we're kind of, instead of me being like, so tell me about these things that you brought out in the interview, just like... It becomes this kind of, well, these things that I think we did a brilliant job of. Yeah, kind of, it, it sort of, it feels a bit like um, that wonderful play with Derek Jacobi and, and Ian McKellen, where they're both actors. Yeah, well, darling, I thought one of the very brilliant things in this interview was exactly that. That was a terrible Ian McKellen interview. Let's just cut that appalling digression. Like, Adrian's I, definitely going to leave it in now. <laughs> I thought one of the really interesting bits of, was, as you say, this kind of, way than it was an interview in which she was you know kind of scrupulously loyal while at the same time doing I think lots of quite interesting sort of subtle well actually I don't think it is that great an idea to announce you know kind of big things at this stage in the parliament you know that that's perhaps the, not the thing to do until later on there were lots of kind of things which I think yeah were subtly revealing of divides uh, within the Labour Party Actually, I think the interesting thing is, because obviously one of the things that we have disagreed about on this podcast, in print, in the NS's office in Parliament, is about the wisdom of making that switch. I have actually now come around to your way of thinking on it. But one of your sort of criticisms is the argument, yeah, that she kind of should have asserted herself more in post. And in some ways, this interview both is very assertive, but it's assertive in a very Annalise Dodds kind of way. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, I feel like we should run through some of those criticisms, the way she is sort of assertive in an Annalise Dodds way. I think that it's maybe not the most interesting bit of the interview, but probably the thing to say first is that I think that she really doesn't hold back ultimately in criticising the people who were briefing against her and also the people around Keir Starmer who didn't stop it. It's quite subtle, particularly with relation to Keir's team. You know, she talks about how she doesn't, you know, I broke the quotes up a bit in the piece, but she talks about how she doesn't believe in red on red fighting in print, doesn't believe that the Labour Party should wash its dirty laundry in public. And she says that she's never engaged with that. And then she says, and I think obviously we've seen quite a large change within the leadership team in Labour. And I think that there's a strong recognition there as well, that it's really important that we're always sending our best foot forwards. And the focus is always on Labour, not red on red. So I think that's very helpful indeed. (laughs) And I think that that, as you say, it's a very Annalisa Dodds way of putting it. But I think that that is a real dig at Keir Starmer's team and, and her welcoming the changes that he has made in the past few months. Because the problem wasn't just that colleagues were suggesting that maybe she wasn't performing well in the job. It was the fact that Keir Starmer didn't move her 
but he also didn't quash those criticisms for a very long time, which was the worst of both worlds. Either you're going to sack her and you do, or you make it very clear that she's your shadow chancellor and she has your full backing. And I'm sure that it was very difficult for her to be in that difficult limbo between the two. She's also, I think there's a a real amount of sass. We raised that issue of, of cut through with her. Because that was one of the main criticisms that people made, that she's a, you know, a very capable politician and a very smart person, but people felt that she just wasn't resonating with the public or managing to land a blow on the very popular Rishi Sunak during the pandemic. And so I, we just asked her what she thought of that criticism. And obviously, Annalise Dodds is famously one of the nicest people in the Labour Party, So she said this quite sweetly, but she said, you know, I was always very interested to hear from people with their views about what I should have been doing. I still am very keen to hear people's comments when they're very generalized. It's obviously harder to act on the basis of them. Right. And she just gave like there was just a little bit of steel in that answer, which was really interesting. But then actually that whole idea of cut through drives right to the heart, really, of why maybe Keir Starmer did decide to remove Annalisa Dodds. Yeah, as well as that sort of, you know, rather enjoyably kind of, well, you know, it's quite vague. I thought the other interesting bit of that answer was when she kind of goes on to say, well, look, actually, I I wouldn't advise anyone as Shadow Chancellor to prioritise cutting through because your job as Shadow Chancellor is to show that your party is credible, except, you know, not to kind of maximise, you know, people talking about you at the expense of that. Which, yeah, that that is the essence of the actual political disagreement at the heart of those changes, right? Then mm-hmm. various people with the ear of the Labour leader and the Labour leader himself, so I'm sorry, are very much of the view that what they need to do over the next couple of, of months, particularly at conference, is really set out a kind of couple of flagship, quite radical responses to the big problems of our time. We've seen a bit of that in their summer campaign over jobs. Although obviously the main purpose of a summer campaign, if you're an opposition party, is just to yeah, basically go, okay, so we have a big list of topics that are comfortable for everyone in the Labour Party to talk about. And everyone in, and it's, it's true regardless of what the opposition party is, and is slightly uncomfortable for a bit of the government, and we can just kind of do a kind of control V, control P kind of approach to just kind of continually spamming that campaign, of which the job stuff, and, you know, with my Wonka channel, there's lots of really worthy stuff in there, right? But its main purpose is, is that basically everyone in the Labour Party agrees with their policies on jobs. But it is also part of, for them, how they think they're going to, yeah, almost everything they do policy-wise now is kind of targeted at that swing bit of the age distribution. Yeah, kind of basically people aged 35 to, to 45. Because if you look at the average age since you start voting Conservative in 2017 compared to the average age since you start voting Conservative in, in 2019, essentially, if you can just drag it yeah, back up to yeah, above 45 into the 50s, then the Conservatives start to have uh, real difficulties. And you can kind of see that that divide playing out in terms of her going, look, it's not about cutting through at this stage. And the fact that um, Keir Starmer very much does want to make a big statement about his Labour Party here in the present day. We did actually ask Annalisa Dodds explicitly why she thought that she'd been moved. And she sort of said that we'd have to ask Keir Starmer. But that answer is the answer, isn't it? That she really quite clearly lays out the fundamental disagreement between her and Keir Starmer there, or certainly the 
the fundamental disagreement as she sees it. He could well have had a different reason, but I think she made it quite clear that she thinks she was moved because she was working on the economic credibility of the Labour Party and cared about quietly working on that and seeing the ratings go up on that in terms of public confidence, public trust in how Labour would manage the public finances and quietly working on Labour's credibility in quite specialised economic circles and banking circles and so on versus a more immediate desire to make attention-grabbing announcements. And I think that's quite interesting because it is completely right what she points out in the interview that Labour doesn't win if it isn't performing well on economic credibility. I suppose it's an open question whether if you make attention-grabbing spending announcements, you do damage your economic credibility or whether that's a risk worth taking. Clearly, Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves have arrived at a different conclusion on that to Annalisa Dodds. Yeah, I think to continue the sort of, um, and wasn't the interview marvellous kind of self-congratulatory tone of this section of the podcast, I think you say it is interesting because you, you really can argue either way. And I think anyone who says confidently, one of the problems I think political parties have is you have to be confident in all of your... You, you aren't sort of really allowed to go because of how we you know, how we in the media would respond and indeed how internal opponents within your political party go. You can't, for example, go, hey, look, we've never had an uncontrolled COVID epidemic with a vaccinated population before, so we don't really know how that's going to work in, in the winter months, so we're just going to suck it and see, right? You're not allowed to, to do that kind of thing, which means you kind of end up sort of with you know, kind of rigid and, you know, kind of going, oh, well, you can't possibly plan for there to be no exams last year, last year, for example. And in opposition parties, it means everyone has to go, no, no, this tactical approach is definitely the right one. But the point I remember you making, and it's really stuck with me during the reshuffle was, well, the thing about politics is the more mistakes you make, the easier your job becomes, because you block off more and more strategic options. And I think, I instinctively think the argument that at the start of a parliament, you should just establish some basic facts about your candidate. Yeah, in, in his case, I, you know, I think it's basically the time to go, you know, a noun, a verb. Did I mention that I ran the DPP? I'm tough on crime and I'm, you know, like a nice guy, right? Though that should basically, in my view, be the, the aim of an opposition party in its first couple of years is just to establish its candidate. And then you do the policy stuff at the point when people might, be looking at it you essentially kind of yeah you kind of do the sort of okay right we're 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 in the sort of run up to the election now's the time to kind of do the big kind of like here's our stuff and i think the risk of not of doing of doing the let's get out early is one then the government just steals your best idea and two then the government just chip chips away at it you know the, the mansion tax under ed miliband i think you know, a classic example of something just got chipped away at and became this kind of continual point then you know it got to a point where it felt like you know anyone with a semi-detached house with more than two bedrooms in a marginal seat started to believe they would one day pay this mansion tax or indeed the energy price was where you know the kind of conservatives did do some things to kind of deliberately sort of steal that policy's clothes and like denude some of its threat while at the same time trying to claim that it was about wanting to live in a Marxist universe. But because of the sort of policy overload of, of the first year of his leadership, because of you know, the various problems with stakeholder management, which I think it is, well, we we'll get into this a bit in part two, but I think it is fair to say has improved significantly in, with most stakeholders, with one very important exception, which again, we'll get into in part two. But I think they now are at a position where 
they kind of have to hope that the Starmer Reeves view is right and the Dodds approach at Shadow Treasury is wrong because they do need, I think, to do that. Like, here we are, here are some big policies. Here's something which conveys a flavor in a way that the 200, and again, not an exaggeration, they really did announce 200 non-COVID related policies in their first year. The way that they 200 policies have just obviously not done. So it's an interesting example, I think, of your kind of, yeah, you should, I'm now just using the podcast to commission you apparently, but you should really should like blog that, not least because it would mean that instead of me being like that thing you said that time would be like that blog on the NS website. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that was actually on the night of the, of Keir Starmer's reshuffle, wasn't it? And, and you asked what I would do. And I was like, I would just give Angela Rayner her job back. So I think it, that was, I suppose, the low point of Keir Starmer's year. I'm sure he would admit that too. I do think, as you say, that when once you've made quite a few mistakes, the political strategy going forward is much easier because you're just trying to fix them. I think it would be incredibly hard to be leader of the opposition in a pandemic or it would be hard to be a politician full stop and to get everything right. But when you're watching and you can see people getting things wrong... I think the strategy for recovery is a bit more obvious. With the Annalisa Dodds interview, I hope that people also find the human side quite interesting because I think that she, as a person, is quite a fascinating phenomenon in politics and in labour politics because she really is very determinedly loyal. For all that we've been sort of teasing out the subtext of different things that she has said, she ultimately took on this job in the middle of the pandemic, was facing criticism from across her party, really from the beginning, when I think it would be fair to say that whatever you think of the criticisms levelled at her, they were perhaps disproportionate given the performance of some other people in the shadow cabinet. And... So she was facing all this criticism for quite a long time. She didn't really have very much apparent support from the Labour leader. She didn't hit back at all and then just graciously accepted her sacking and her, and her move to another job after it had been trailed for ages. Now she's happily doing this new job as party chair, still backing Keir Starmer, outwardly being completely loyal and pro-Labour because she's sort of thinking in the wider interests of the Labour Party that it's not worth litigating these arguments in public. I think that takes a quite unusual personality type in politics to do that. And I think I'm struck by how rare her approach is. Whether it works or not, I suppose, is a different matter. But I'm just very struck that it would take a lot on a personal level to swallow all of that for an entire year and pretty much forever. I mean, I'm sure in 20 years, if she's giving an interview and she's asked, or even maybe if slash when Keir Starmer is no longer leader, but when, because he won't be Labour leader forever, no matter what happens, but maybe in a decade or so, she'll feel freer to be more honest about the year that she's had. But I'm just really struck by the quite determined loyalty there and her thinking sort of in terms of what's in the interests of Labour rather than just herself. And also on the human side, I didn't put this in the piece because it didn't quite fit and there was lots of other material, but 
as you know, obviously, as, as listeners and readers know, I've been fascinated by the Annalisa Dodds, Rachel Reeves psychodrama for about a year. And I think they're both really interesting, capable politicians. And I'm just struck that actually Rachel Reeves has sort of been in the background of Annalisa Dodds's career since university. So when Annalisa Dodds was appointed Shadow Chancellor, I did a profile of her for the magazine and spoke to friends of hers and people who had worked with her and so on for it, as well as interviewing her. And one of Annalisa Dodds's friends from Oxford was talking about Rachel Reeves being in the year below. And Annalisa Dodds was president of her JCR. And then I think went on to be president of the students' union for the entire university. And then I'm probably misremembering this. I should check, I should have checked my notes on this before I said it. But Rachel Reeves was also involved. She I think she was JCR president of her college and or she was also involved in the Oxford Student Union. At the time, Rachel Reeves was just considered so formidable. So I, I just find it fascinating that Annalisa Dodds was probably like one of the most successful student politicians in her year at Oxford. She was incredibly well-liked, did really, really well in her degree and rose to the very top of student politics. But even at that point, she was slightly not overshadowed, but her style was very different to the kind of brilliant girl in the year below who would give these supposedly barnstorming speeches at students' union meetings and who was considered quite intimidating. I just find that so fascinating that decades on, that's still playing out between the two women. I don't think there's any bad blood between them at all. I think they really like each other. That was a boring bit of our interview that got cut. Annalisa Dodds just being very nice about Rachel Reeves. I think that's, I mean, it's obviously also silly that so many politicians go to Oxford, that, that that's also a thing that happens. I think Matt Hancock was also in their year or in one of their years. No, it's making me want to kill myself. Like, I... <laughs> well, I, I just think it's, I'm, I'm sure that the two women are aware of this, that they have been in each other's lives, vying for similar positions for, for literally decades. Yeah, it is an interesting. I think you're kind of, also your point about how the striking thing is actually just how this was still a kind of, it's an interesting interview, people should read it, but it really is a, it is strikingly loyal. And one of the interesting things about the past year, right, is it's not just this quite important disagreement over strategy, you know, and, and what, you know, and how, how, how those two roles need to conduct themselves. It's also a disagreement about how best to advocate for that strategy. Because there's another universe, right, in which, and indeed sort of some other shadow cabinet allies of the sort of Dodds approach, basically were at some points trying to freelance their own approach to doing this, which is basically to go, look, yeah, the Annalise approach has yielded these like lovely sort of write-ups in the FT, which is actually not that far away from from the old fiscal rule of, of the last Labour lead, leader. These are the bedrocks we need to build. And if we switch, it will be because we're switching to bigger spending announcements, stuff about the global tax rules, of the kind of thing that we have now started to see in the Reeves era. Now, you can argue about whether or not that would have been better for the Labour Party to have that argument more publicly. It would obviously probably have made it 
harder to make that switch around. And yet, on the other hand, you have supporters of uh, of Rachel Ruth who, who very much did take the view that, okay, well, if we think that this change should be made, then we need to actually advocate for this change to be made. And if this creates difficulties for the Labour Party in the medium term, well, meh. It is, yeah, it is a really interesting sort of, not clash of personalities for the reasons you're out, but an interesting clash of approaches. Albie, again, one where I think that actually the, the strategic argument about which was the best approach, I think, was much more open a year ago, whereas now that argument has taken care of itself, right? If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Don't forget, you can now listen to our special Germany Elects podcast series, which explores the campaign, the runners and riders, and the big issues ahead of Germany's election on September 26th. Available now on the World Review podcast feed and at newstatesman.com slash Germany. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. So this is a question from Isaac, who asks, what is stopping the Labour Party removing their institutional ties to trade unions? It seems like they have dragged the party left of the electorate. Why not be like the Tories, relying on only the membership and parliamentary party? Stephen, what do you think? I'm going to become even more nasal than I am usually. Well, actually, well, actually, I actually think this is th- this question, as well as having a very short answer, well, obviously I'm ideologically opposed to giving short answers, has a, a kind of much more interesting historical answer, which is actually this argument's not true. Throughout the history of the Labour Party, the bulwark of keeping the Labour Party closer to the, yeah, whether you want to say closer to its right or closer to the centre, whatever, has been the trade union movement. And actually, that was true even in the Corbyn era, right? Now, yeah, you have lots of general secretaries who are positioning in terms of their own internal electorate in a way which would make you think publicly, oh, that's not true. But actually, the votes that frustrated Corbynism, I think one of the things that often people don't quite seem to get is that you have to understand Corbynism both as an ideology about the economy and society, but also as a theory of practice of how the Labour Party should operate. And in terms of frustrating Corbynism, both as an ideology, yeah, in terms of, you know, the position on nuclear power, the various negotiations that had to be had about sanding off some of the edges of the Green New Deal, changes to how MPs face selection, indeed, the composition of the 2017 intake. Um, those are all examples of 
trade unions in the present day moving the Labour Party. Now, obviously, these terms are all imprecise. As I was saying that, I can already imagine, I actually could name, except it would be terrible source provision, the, the two Tory MPs and three Labour MPs are going to angrily text me going, actually, being radical on climate change is not a left-right issue. We should use our interest. But regardless, right, these are all issues in which, in terms of the sort of, if we want to use the term centre ground, it's not like a sort of there's the left here and the right here, but where the modal British voter is, right? These are all examples of Corbynism being moved by the actually existing trade union movement. And that's even before you get into the really basic argument that like money, the Labour Party does need money to operate. And most of that money does come from the trade union movement. And even at the height of the you know, new Labour in power forever. You know, the sun will never again rise on the Tory party, even in the sort of, you know, those kind of, you know, like those heady, like early noughties days, they were still the biggest individual donors. Now, actually, some of those stats are slightly, you know, we, we shouldn't forget them because we bulge in councillors as a Labour affiliate. Councillors are also a pretty big contribution, so directly elected people tithing to Labour. But, you know, the trade unions keep the lights on and they also, it just, I think, is more complicated than the trade unions keep the Labour Party on the le- yeah, have moved the Labour Party to the left. Also, I think, you know, actually the interesting institutional tension in the Labour Party is the platonic form of the Labour Party, as envisaged by many general secretaries, including ones who might surprise you, is actually to have some form of the electoral college back. Yeah, where you had a third for the trade union, a third for the Labour MPs, and a third for party members. And some of them, you know, when they've had, you know, a couple more drinks, might even then go look, ultimately, do we even really need the third for the party members? So, yeah, I think it is just a bit of a misread in addition to, to everything else. I thought that was a really interesting answer. Maybe as a, a rare follow-up, you ask us just a question from me to you. How do you think that Keir Starmer in particular relates to trade unions? Because there's been some new developments with that recently, but how would you characterise his relationship to them right so this this i think is actually a really interesting and it's what i realize whenever i say and underwritten it's like and whose fault is that Stephen? whose job is it to write on these topics um a thing a thing that i really should have got my skates on and written on written on more and obviously there are lots of people writing interesting things on this not least alex mcguire who's written a piece for us and written various pieces for left foot forward sienna rogers at labor list of course but the interesting thing is is that the the leader's office has really, I think it is fair to say, taken quite a significant step change in terms of how it approaches. The mood music around it is definitely changing, albeit quite imperceptibly. It really does remind me of the kind of late 2016 changes where it actually took ages. It really took until the 2017 election for people to just be like, oh, has the leader's office become more more well-organised? But actually that had happened a long, a long time before. There is, however, I think one important, quite interesting blind spot in the new setup, which is when you talk to a lot of Gen Sex, they still feel like this leader's office doesn't really understand them and their issues. Yeah, one of them said, you know, I just feel like, you know, they kind of like, they, they're they sort of basically inclined to kind of go, oh, you know, ASLEF, TSA, RMT, they're all the same, right? They're all transport unions, they're all on the left. And yeah, they kind of said, yeah, they, they yeah, they said, I feel like they don't understand like, you know, the differences between, you know, the internal issues in Unison versus the internal issues in the GMB. Yeah. Now, of course, Keir himself is is and always has been, right, the the candidate and the sort of product of Labour's soft left establishment or 
wow, God, I realize I really have admitted defeat on my war on the term soft left because I usually use the term middle of the party. But even I've accepted it's not going to happen. I have stopped trying to make Fetch happen. But yeah, he's always been the candidate, therefore, of Unison, that bit of the party. I'm fairly certain, yeah, Unison did endorse him in his selection bid. And yeah, the candidate of the sort of middle of the party, right? And we see that still manifesting itself in all kinds of ways, not least what was the biggest and most controversial move he made in terms of the PLP in his shadow cabinet it is appointing Ed Miliband and restoring him to a, a pretty prominent spot. But one of the things I th- is it does feel like there's a fascinating kind of lacuna in, in both his, his own sort of approach and his leader's office still around the sort of trickier inner workings of the trade unions. One trade union official said, well, you know, they said, uh, they said, I think it's a, a consequence of the fact that actually he hasn't been in politics very long and he hasn't really come into contact with many of the affiliated unions. They said, and actually they said, you know, they said the CPS, not to tip the politics of this particular trade union, they said, they said the CPS might have mad trotty politics, they said, but, you know, they said, but it's actually like fairly easy to understand how it runs. They said, it's, they said, it's not like my union where it's really kind of like, well, how long have you got? And I think that is an interesting, I imagine it will something that will take care of itself. But I think it is an interesting issue for them because in terms of if they want changes to how um, the party operates, now obviously they have a big set of changes to how the party operates in terms of the EHRC changes. But of course, although there will be a lot of theatre at Labour Party conference and that theatre might be painful and embarrassing for the Labour leadership, at the end of this process, right, this is something that's been enforced on them by the regulator. So what's actually really at stake with the EHRC changes is does the Labour Party get to carry off like kind of pretending that this is a process where it's like, we're doing this, you know, look how we've changed. Or does it have the sort of humiliation of the regulator being like, you haven't done this, now it's going to be done to you, which is, you know, politically going to be quite important, but it's not, you know, the same as it's, it's you know, it, it is a very different kettle of fish, I think, to, you know, the rule, rule changes to like, you know, change how you select candidates, change how you let the, the Labour leader, change how you can remove the Labour leader, all of that kind of thing, all of which does run through the trade unions. And yeah, and despite what you read in Verdict paper, and despite the kind of assumptions in the original question, in many ways are closer to that, in my view, wrongheaded, that attitude than, you know, the Collins review was a disastrous mistake. One member, one vote is terrible. And then, you know, the Labour Party is at its best when it's essentially an arrangement between the trade unions and the PLP with some things called the members whose job it is to like deliver leaflets and occasionally provide an MP from their ranks, which yeah, I don't think is a good way of running the Labour Party. But actually, that is that would be if you said to people, if you said to a lot of, 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 of fairly senior people in the trade union movement, look, you can close your eyes, write your ideal structure for the Labour Party on a piece of paper. It'll be implemented. And no one will ever know what you wrote on your piece of paper. That is the structure that they would end up with. And and of course, just just quickly, Unite has a new general secretary in uh, Sharon Graham. I wrote about it at the time in terms of how I think it's that was a result that has simultaneously kind of pleased everyone in Labour and kind of annoyed everyone in Labour in that she hadn't been widely expected to win and wasn't really any faction's candidate, even though she's from the left. So now everyone in Labour is kind of making a case for why her election is great, while also probably being privately disappointed that their preferred candidate didn't win. But actually, she's a really interesting case where it's not so much about the Labour Party, even though you kind of feel obliged when you're reporting on this, especially as 
a political correspondent to talk about its relevance to the Labour Party, first and foremost. But in a way, her victory is just much more about delivering for members of Unite and much less to do with how Unite relates to the Labour Party, except insofar as from everything that she has said, Sharon Graham is not terribly interested in the internal machinations of the Labour Party. And you can imagine that she will hold Keir Starmer's feet to the fire on particular issues that are of concern to her members, but she won't be engaged so much in factional disputes. Yeah, it's an interesting one because, yeah, all, all elections in trade unions are about small L labour politics, not big L labour politics. But, you know, because of various changes in the structure of, of Fleet Street, the fact that, you know, very few newspapers now have have sort of a proper labour rights, uh, yeah, proper labour correspondent. Lots of them have big L labour correspondents. It means they, they do get covered increasingly solely through the prism of, well, what does this mean for the Labour Party? And yeah, you're exactly right. And despite the fact that her political positioning and that of Gerard Coyne, who came third, I mean, ultimately, you know, without, yeah, I, I kind of think if a large number of people in the Labour Party genuinely thought there was a serious prospect, I mean, you can you can kind of come up with a sort of, abstract scenario in which Jared Coyne could have won, despite having had his organising base essentially dismantled after his close run thing last time. But he was just always so unlikely, right? And they should always have been kind of hoping for, for this in lots of ways. But broadly, elections in trade unions generally have two messages. One is the union is going, well, let's not, you know, let's not experiment with change. And then there's the, you know, things could be better, essentially, you know, to use a student union example, because I imagine that works to be more resident for uh, a lot of our listeners, is a kind of students for students, let's like do more stuff for ourselves, let's make the union run better. Now, of course, in many ways, that was also Gerard Coyne's campaign, both this time and last time. And actually, despite all of the kind of, you know, it turned out hilariously wrongheaded sort of bashing of Sharon Graham for splitting, splitting the left vote, I think if anything, she and Coyne were always a greater threat to one another, simply because they were both running as the yeah, the let's change the status quo, whereas Steve Turner was running as the status quo candidate. Now, I do think a big part of what happened in this election, I mean, a big part of why Len McCluskey was narrowly re-elected last time was that um, Unite had just had a very good result in terms of the Jaguar Land Rover deal. And obviously Unite, as with most unions, had had, had a mixed time in the pandemic, not least particularly difficulty, difficulty for Unite in aviation. And Sharon Graham is I've seen, I think, rightly and fairly as being responsible for lots of the things in Unite that work well. I think less fairly Steve Turner was seen as being responsible for the things about Unite that work badly. Now, I think that you're exactly right. Then, then what I think will be a change for Labour is they will go from having an argument with Unite about personnel, you know, preferred candidates in terms of to argument, actually, in some ways, it will be a lot more similar to the one they have with the CWU. Now, Dave Ward, the first sort of trade union leader to properly stick his neck out for Jeremy Corbyn, CWU's general secretary, I think also probably actually the most influential in terms of policy in the Corbyn era, in terms of specific policy gets that, you know, were were driven by him and his team rather than kind of like, yeah, that's just what Jeremy Corbyn believes. And yeah, the political director of certain trade unions can pretend in their yearly annual review and it had something to do with them but it didn't really he also ran on a the union could be running better let's do more for ourselves against billy hayes who was also seen as being on the left and i don't think anyone would say that they thought dave ward had, had been bad for corbynism now of course because of united sheer size they will continue to be really influential in selections rule changes a bunch of other things but i think that the big step change for labor and one that i think keir starmer's office will probably find a bit 
weird to adjust to, will I think be much more sort of muscular engagement over specific policy asks and less sort of direct day-to-day involvement in the sort of internal divisions. But, you know, because of their size, right? And this actually, I think, is the to, to come back to the original question, right? The really interesting thing about the Labour Party is the Labour Party, you know, not just trade union structure, but everything about it envisages a world of work before the rise of sort of mega corporations, mega sized trade unions, mega sized everything, right? And that does make the Labour leader's job harder because they always, you know, ultimately you're powerful on the NEC if you're the Labour leader, if you have multiple routes to your your NEC majority. You become weaker. This was always Corbyn's difficulty. He had a majority, but it was a majority that only ran one way, right? It ran through Unite and through the member section. So when he wanted to, you know, when he was at odds with, with, with one of those components, he was kind of hemmed in he didn't have alternate routes to his majority that is harder for all labor leaders that's a secular change because we have more well we have fewer but bigger trade unions involved in the labor in the labor party stronger on the conference floor more representation on the nec and therefore less freedom to maneuver for the labor leader and that doesn't really change even though of course i imagine some of the negotiations will be on slightly different things on slightly different issues as a result of the change of leadership at the top of united You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and our political correspondent, Alva Ray. It's produced and recorded by Adrian Bradley. Our music is Devil with the Devil and is licensed under Creative Commons. If you've been enjoying the New Statesman podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe. And if you've already done those, why not tell a friend to do the same? Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.